everybody. It's a great joy to be with you. I have been here on a few occasions, and so hopefully I'm not a complete stranger. Um, but uh, more than that, I know some of your people. I know some of your children. Um, and uh, it's been a great joy to have crossed paths. Uh, what a privilege to be in partnership with churches, that uh, our churches are not independent. Our churches are not islands. Uh, we're not um, in isolation. We're actually in community uh, beyond our local congregations because we share in a partnership called Advance, and uh, it's just an incredible privilege to be partnering in friendship and in theology and shared mission um, and in the advance of the gospel, hence the name. And, uh, and so we love to plant churches, we love to strengthen churches, and, uh, and what, a, what a wonderful joy to do it in our region, in the Eastern Cape. And so thank you, Matt, for uh, inviting me. Um, like he said, we've just been at Hogger Hogger. What a special place. And uh, we love to, you know, in the past we would alternate. We'd like have one year in PE, one year in Hogger Hogger. And then we just realized why, you know, like what's, what's like, I mean, Hogger of all places, so great you've got to say it twice, right? So it's just like, it's just uh, a no-brainer. <clears throat> Um, it's my privilege to speak into part two of your new series uh, on the Holy Spirit, pneumatology, uh, understanding the work of the Spirit in our lives, and uh, what a privilege to, to gather and to uh, speak into uh, this trajectory that you're on as a community of faith together. And so if you have a Bible, you can open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. The text is on the screen and you can follow on there. Uh, we're going to be starting out just looking at the first three verses of chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians. So here we go. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers. Obviously the sisters are included. The Bible often did that. Uh, you might see a footnote. The Greek includes brothers and sisters. But Paul says, now concerning spiritual gifts, so the reason he says that is because they've written a letter to Paul, and Paul is responding to questions. Paul is responding to some concerns in the church. Paul planted this church. Paul was with the church for two years, and then Paul left to do other missionary work. And in his absence, things have gone a little strange. And so they write back to Paul, and they say, Paul, there's a couple of weird things going on. We're not quite sure how to deal with it. Can you help us out? And so Paul is responding throughout the letter. You'll find that he says this on a number of occasions. Now concerning food sacrifice to idols, now concerning the spiritual people in your midst now concerning spiritual gifts he says i do not want you to be uninformed so part of the problem was ignorance right part of the problem was a lack of information a, a lack of a good theology what, what contributed to that were, were there other people coming in teaching something else possibly maybe it was part of their background i think so look at verse two you know that when you were what pagans you were led astray to mute idols. It's kind of like that pagan background has crept back into the church. You know that you were pagans when you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, he has his conclusion, therefore, I want you to understand, I want you to have some fresh information, good theology, that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes when people teach 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through to 14, they would kind of put it on a pedestal. 
and say, you know, we should be using our spiritual gifts like the Corinthians. No, please don't. Please don't use the spiritual gifts like the Corinthians. In many ways, the Corinthian church was a Corinthian catastrophe. But Paul doesn't say, okay, you guys are abusing the gifts. Now they're off the table. You've had too many sweets, no more sweets. He doesn't treat them like children. Now, having said that, he does have something to say about immaturity. Look at this. He says this in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So in the one sense, he's being a good parent. He's identifying that even though they are abusing the spiritual gifts, he doesn't want to punish them inappropriately and say, well, now the spiritual gifts are no longer available. Paul's not a cessationist. We know that from 1 Corinthians 13, the gifts will pass away when the perfect comes. When Christ comes, when the perfect state Jesus ushers in, then all the gifts will cease. No, no longer needed. But he is concerned that although they have the gifts, they are ungodly. They are immature. They are childish in their spiritual manners. He says, I couldn't treat you as spiritual people, but as infants, as, as children. You see, we, we have to log this right up front. We have to log this reality that they had all the spiritual gifts, but clearly the presence of spiritual gifts alone is not a sign of maturity. Let me say that again. Just because there is the presence of spiritual gifts does not automatically mean spiritual maturity. Corinthians is the perfect case study. They have all the gifts, but it's a mess. However, despite the mess, Paul does not dismiss the gifts. He regulates them. He brings some structure. He brings some information. He brings order to the chaos. And so Gordon Fee wrote a great book called Paul and the Spirit of God. One, one, one or two great lines. He says this. He says, the antidote for the misuse of spiritual gifts is not no use, but correct use. You see, we could overreact. You know, just because there's a bad experience, I want nothing to do with it. No, no. Paul says, no, no. We're not going to dismiss them. We're going to regulate them. I want you to be charismatic, but I want you to be charismatics with a seatbelt, right? The seatbelt being scripture, godly order, maturity. So look again at verse 1 and 2. I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray. So there was a sense in which they were allowing their kind of pagan background, their kind of hyper spirituality, their, their, their sense of being just governed by experience to lead their lives. And part of what contributed to that was that they were making a big deal of certain gifts, in particular speech gifts, in particular prophecy and tongues. The Corinthians were making a big deal of that and were, were kind of putting a, a blanket statement over everyone in the church and said, well, if you don't prophesy or if you don't speak in tongues, you're not spiritual. And Paul was devastated by this 
because Paul is very clear that it's the Spirit who gives gifts as He wills. And that not all do speak in tongues and not all do prophesy. But at the same time, some do. You see, what Paul goes on to do in chapter 12, and it's one of his most amazing analogies, is uh, an analogy of the body. One of the most profound analogies we have in Scripture of all these different body parts. I'm sure you've seen the movie, The Night at the Museum. It was one of our favorites. Uh, as, as a young family, when our kids were growing up, we'd love to watch it. You know, just the animals come alive at night. I don't know if you've been to We Buy Cars, you know, one of those big... Whenever I go there, I feel like that's what happens at night. The cars come alive. But Paul's illustration in chapter 12 is similar because what happens is the body parts start to have a conversation with one another. The eye starts talking to the hand and saying, hey, I don't need you. And then the foot says to the ear, well, I don't need you either. And Paul has this body part conversation, and he says, isn't that childish? That's not what the body does. Your physical body doesn't do that. So neither should we. Neither should we elevate one gift above another gift. Neither should we despise one gift, because all the gifts are from the Spirit as He wills. We need each other, we need the gifts, we need the body to be healthy and functioning. And so he comes to a conclusion in verse 3. He says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says two things. Either Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. This is kind of a, an introductory conclusion. It's strange. Normally you get to the conclusion right at the end, but it's like right here in the introduction. And so what I think Paul is trying to communicate is that he's giving us a framework and a foundation for how we should view the rest of chapters 12, 13, and 14. And so the first idea here is a framework in this double confession. These are two confessions. Some people were saying things blasphemy about Jesus. Some, some people in the church were, were, were under the influence of the Spirit, and they were saying things that were not true about Christ. They were manifesting things that were not true about Christ. They were saying things that were not true about Christ, and it was blasphemy. Some people were saying even Jesus is accursed. And then others were amazingly, incredibly, confessing Christ as Lord. And so we have a framework and we have a foundation. Let's consider the first of these phrases. It's quite jarring. Jesus is accursed. I would suggest to us that here we have a framework for spiritual activity. How do we discern what's really of the Holy Spirit and what's not of the Holy Spirit? How do we know if someone is speaking truth? It looks like they're under the influence of the Spirit, but how do we discern whether it is the Spirit? How do we know if a spiritual gift is actually from the Holy Spirit or is it some other spirit? Well, Paul says, I want you to understand that no one speaking, manifesting, acting in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. In other words... If ever Jesus is marginalized, it's not the Holy Spirit. If ever Jesus Christ is 
only seen as supplementary. You know, you need Judaism plus Jesus. Or you need this gift above the other gifts. Or you need something else, some kind of mediate, some kind of priest or pastor to help you to get to God. Whatever it might be, if Jesus is not portrayed as sufficient, but only supplementary, or Jesus is marginalized, or Jesus is even blasphemed, we know absolutely that's not God the Holy Spirit. Because no one, he says, speaking in the Spirit of God, ever marginalizes Jesus. So the reverse is true then too, that actually what the Spirit of God does is He magnifies Jesus. He makes much of Jesus. You want to see spiritual activity? You want to see spiritual gifts at work in your church? You want to see the Holy Spirit come down in power upon your church? I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like everyone talking about Jesus. Everyone loving on Jesus. Everyone magnifying Jesus, because the only way you can do that is by the power of the Spirit. And so we have a beautiful framework here. John 15, verse 26, Jesus' own words, But when the Helper comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. The Holy Spirit loves to bear witness about Jesus. It is his, it's His ultimate joy. As you heard last week, the Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of the Trinity, fully God. But He loves to magnify Jesus Christ. He loves to glorify Christ. And so we have a framework. We, we know with confidence that whatever workings of the Spirit we see, whatever gifts it might be, whatever miracles or signs or wonders, if they are done and the result is Christ is being magnified, Christ's likeness is being established, we can know that that. that that the content of what's being said in that moment and the fruit of what's being produced, if it's bringing glory to the person using the gift or if it's magnifying anything else or marginalizing Jesus, we know what to do with it. The great English preacher Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, I looked at Christ and the dove of peace flew into my heart. I looked at the dove, and it flew away. Now, obviously, we can engage with the Holy Spirit, because as we know, the Holy Spirit is God. But I think he's establishing a biblical paradigm that even the Bible presents to us. And that is that the Spirit empowers us for Christ-exalting service. And so it's not our goal to necessarily run after the dove. No, no. What happens is when we pursue Christ, we experience the power of the dove, the Holy Spirit. Listen to Gordon Fee again. He says this, the presence of the Spirit in power and gifts makes it easy for God's people to think of power and gifts 
as the real evidences of the Spirit's presence. Not so for Paul. The ultimate criterion of the Spirit's activity is the exaltation of Jesus as Lord. Whatever takes you away from that, even if they be legitimate expressions of the Spirit, begins to move away from Christ to a more pagan fascination with spiritual activity as an end in itself. SBC, I plead with you in your pursuit of a Spirit-empowered mission and ministry, do not confuse spiritual activity as the end in itself or the, or the goal. No, no, your goal is to make much of Christ. And the only way we can do that is in the power of the Spirit. So there is the framework. There's so much more we could add. But the other thing we see here is a foundation so we have a framework through which we measure and judge and discern spiritual activity. But we also see a, a foundation for spiritual life. And that is the confession, Jesus is Lord. Look at verse 3 again. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, the confession, Jesus is Lord, may sound fairly simple for our ears today, but it was one of the most radical confessions in the first century. In the first century of Christianity, to mouth these words, you could have lost your life. It was a confession of allegiance that could get you killed. This confession, Jesus Christ is Lord, was rejected by the Jews. They crucified him. He's not Lord. We put him to death. And so there was religious pressure. There was also cultural pressure because for the Romans who were in power, it was an offense to say Jesus is Lord because Caesar is Lord and Caesar ruled. And so this was seen as an emerging revolution that needed to be crushed. And so you've got religious pressure and you've got state pressure. And so to confess Jesus as Lord was a remarkable confession. And so how is it, we have to ask the question, how is it that in this bustling city of Corinth, this diverse, pagan, Roman-ruled, with leftovers of Judaism still evidenced through the synagogue meetings, etc., you've got staunch religious Jews, and you've got religious, uh, irreligious, rebellious Gentiles in this city. How is it that some of them now, both Jew and Gentile, are confessing Christ as Lord. How? How does that happen? I mean, it's not like these guys have grown up in a Christian home, right? No, there wasn't anything like that. It didn't exist. They'd either grown up Jewish, Jews or they'd grown up pagans. This is the landscape of Corinth. 
So how is it that Paul arrives in this pagan-dominated, strangely religious city that now people are bowing the knee under threat of their lives and saying, Jesus Christ is Lord? How does that happen? And Paul tells us how it happens. It only happens by the Spirit. He says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, he's not saying no one can just mouth the words, right? Because back then it meant a whole lot more than just saying it. He's saying no one can confess and believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord except by a miracle of regeneration. That the Holy Spirit gives birth to faith in someone's life. The Holy Spirit takes someone who was dead in their sins and makes them alive to Christ and the beauty of who Jesus is. It's impossible. He says no one can do it. It's not like maybe some could in their own strength. No, no. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in or by the Holy Spirit. You see what Paul is pointing us to here is the fountain of spiritual life. The fountain of regeneration comes from the works and the working of the Spirit. It's, it's the greatest work. The, the, the gifts and the fruits flow from this fountain. Without this fountain, there is no gifts and there are no fruits. It has to start here. This is the fountain. This is the spring and this is the greatest prize. The greatest work of the Spirit is Him saving sinners, rescuing us from our sins. Jesus said it this way. Notice the language again of no one can. In John 6 verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And how does the Father do it? He does it by the Spirit. The Spirit draws us. No one can come. There is a moral incapability in the unbeliever, especially in Corinth. And it's true even to today. No one can come. If anyone is going to be saved, if anyone is going to be confessing Jesus as Lord, they need spiritual life. And how, where does this life come from? Where does this new life come from? Well, Jesus goes on in John chapter 6, in verse 63, and He says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And so we cannot recommend ourselves to God. We cannot commend ourselves to God. This is how anyone and everyone becomes a Christian. This is how it happens. It's a miracle. It is a miracle of grace. He opens our eyes. I once was lost. I once was blind. But now I see and now I'm found. How did that happen? It was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit opened my heart, gave me eyes to see, It's called regeneration. 
being born again. Or we could even refer to it as being called by God. The Father drawing us, calling us to be saved. Now you might be thinking, well then, what do we do? You know, if, if it is the, all the Holy Spirit, then do we just sit back and do nothing? And that would be the wrong conclusion. And Paul makes this abundantly clear in a number of places. And so I want us to look at one in particular. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 and 14, we read this. He says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. Notice he's giving praise to God. He's not thanking them for them. He's thanking God. Why? Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. In the divine wisdom of God, he had a plan to save people in Thessalonica, the church there. And how did it happen, Paul? Well, he says, well, it happened through the work of the Spirit, through the sanctification by the Spirit. And, this is interesting, so it's by the Spirit, and then he says, and belief in the truth. Okay, this is really helpful. And then he double-clicks on that here in verse 14. He says, to this he called you. How did he call us? We know it's only the Spirit. No, no, Paul says, yes, it's the Spirit. He called you through our gospel. And so what we have emerging here is this is how the, the Spirit of God works. There's a calling. There is an outward call and there is an inward call. Now, church, hear me. This is really important because we get to do the outward call. And it is critical that we do the outward call. How will anyone know? How will anyone hear? Unless someone is sent, Romans 10 tells us. And so the outward call of the gospel is yours and my responsibility. It is our part in the unfolding of God's sovereign plan. God has a sovereign plan. That doesn't mean we sit back and do nothing. God has a sovereign plan, and it means that we do something, but we know our part. And our part is this. Our part is to call people to come to Christ. Now, if, I don't know about your home, but in my home, when we used to call our kids to come and bath, it was a challenge, right? It's bath time. Crickets. Just back of the garden, no response. And so it was, it was difficult, right? Or, or, you know, if you called them to eat their vegetables just was a mission, right? And so it's not like that. That is our experience. You know, you speak to your neighbor, you speak to your family member, you speak to your friend, you go on a mission trip and you speak to someone and it's like calling your kids to come and bath. Like, come to Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. And we get frustrated, don't we? But here's the good news. That, that's our part. We do the outward call. But we are not responsible for the inward call. That is God's part. And so this is how regeneration happens. This is how people get saved. This is the wonder of the gospel, is that we actually get to participate in the unfolding of God's sovereign plan. But we don't do the heavy lifting. He does. We get the gospel to their ears. God will get it to their hearts. This is such good news. And so thank God, really, truly, not just a saying, thank God that when He calls, it's irresistible. 
thank God that when he calls, every heart melts. Now, you might be thinking, but I know in my experience, I resisted. I resisted. I resisted. I went to a meeting. I heard the gospel. I resisted. I resisted. Yes, you can until he says no more (laughs) because he's God. And people can resist and resist and resist and resist. But when God says now, there is no stopping him. That's how we became Christians. That's how you and I confessed Jesus as Lord. And Paul illustrates this for us in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. He says this, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness. What's this reference to? Genesis, right? To creation. When God said, Let let there be light. Did the light go... I'll be there in an hour. Not today. I don't, I'm not feeling like it. I don't want to be light. No. When God said, let there be light, it obeyed. His, his command created what it needed. And so say, he goes, when, when, when God said, let light shine out of darkness... The same God who did that, look at what he says, has shone where? In our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What what you once thought was laughable. You know those Christians, oh my gosh, those guys are so old school. They're, They're living out of an ancient book. I mean, a crucified Savior, come on. I've got better things to do with my time. Surf's looking good at the reef. You know, this, this, what is up with these Christians? And then the moment comes and suddenly what I thought was laughable and to be judged and to be ridiculed and looked down upon is suddenly precious. Jesus crucified. Why? How? Because he gave me the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I used to spit in His face, and now I bow before His face. How does that happen? It's called a miracle of saving grace that the Holy Spirit does. And Paul's point here is the same way God spoke creation into being is the way that we become new creations. That's the parallel. And so church, beneath the general call, and and here's, here's what gets me excited. Because if this wasn't true, I would not be a preacher, right? Because heaven and hell are hanging on my career. Just, you know, in a nutshell. My job is to tell people about Jesus. And if it were up to me, if I were responsible for the inward call, I'm out. People's eternal destinies I'm responsible for. But thank God that we have the Holy Spirit. I do the outward call 
and we get it wrong, don't we? I mean, how difficult is it sometimes to tell someone, you get on a plane, and I'm like, okay, I know how this is going to go down. We're going to introduce ourselves uh, on the side of the rugby field. My son went to gray. I, I spent hours and hours on the side of the rugby field, and I know the first thing that's going to be asked is, and this is how conversations go, hey, what do you do? So I'm thinking, okay, what do I say? Do I, I mean, am I in life insurance? Um, what do I do? So I just thought I'll always just be honest, you know, and then I, the responses are just, I'm a pastor. And then it's everything from you're a priest to you're a, a bigot. And then I think, well, how do I tell this person about Jesus? What, do I, what is it going to, how am I going to, how? Whatever, what kind of golden ticket conversation do I need to have? And yes, I'm not saying we don't, I'm not saying we should fumble. I'm saying we should have our best arguments and I think we should engage in apologetics and I think we should have some kind of structured way in which we present the gospel or just share your story. This is the good news is that actually I get the gospel to their ears and God's going to get it to their hearts. The results aren't up to me. And so I can carry on being a pastor. And I can sleep well at night. Because we have a God who is at work. He is building His church. That's what Jesus means when He says, I will build my church. He said, I will save people. Don't worry, I've got this. It's the whole point. I went and died for this thing. I've got it. The plan will unfold. You get to play a part. But don't worry, I'll send the Spirit and He will seek and save the lost. Why is this such good news? I, I just want to close quickly with three reasons why this is good news. Assurance, worship, and witness. I've already harped on about witness, but let me just say something about insurance. This is such good news because if God starts the work, He finishes it, right? He said this in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. This is the inward call. This is how you became a Christian. My sheep hear my voice, the inward call. Somebody in your life shared the gospel. Maybe it was a parent, a friend, a neighbor, whoever it was. They did the outward call. They shared the gospel or they said, come to church. Someone did the outward call. But at that point, you heard the voice of God. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. What assurance that if the Spirit begins a true work, He will finish it. Worship. The reason this is a precious truth is because it leads us to worship. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Now, he's not saying, hey, considering, consider your calling to be accountants or consider your calling to be a teacher. <laughs> consider your calling to salvation, brothers. This is what he's saying. Consider it. Think about it. Think about how you became a Christian. And he, and, and he goes on. He says, God chose, God chose. And then he says, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because you realize that there is no ways I could have done this. And his conclusion, therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts of the Lord. It leads us to worship this truth. It gives us assurance. It leads us to worship. And then finally, it leads us to witness. Faith comes from hearing. And hearing 
through the word of Christ. Where does faith come from? It's the Spirit who brings the faith. It's the Spirit who gives birth to the faith. But somebody needs to hear it. You get it to their ears, God will get it to their hearts. Does it always go that way? No, sometimes they resist. And sometimes they resist. And sometimes they resist. And sometimes they laugh. And sometimes they ridicule. But you're not responsible for the response. You just get it to their ears. And trust God with the rest. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way in which you come alongside us and empower us for Christ-exalting witness, ministry. Lord, we want to give you all the glory for our salvation. We thank you that you are the God who saves. Thank you that you are the God who moves mountains. You are mighty to save. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so, Lord, we thank you for the assurance that we have that you who began a good work will complete it until the day of Christ. Thank you that you give eternal life and no one can snatch us from your hand. Lord, thank you that we get to play a part in the unfolding of your sovereign will and plan. What a privilege. What a pleasure. Yes, we tremble. Yes, we are nervous. We need courage to tell people about Jesus. But we thank you that we know that we can fumble and we can stumble and we can tell people about Jesus. And maybe we go to bed thinking, oh, I should have said this and I should have said that. But we thank you that it's the Spirit who gives life. And so, God, we pray that you'd fill us with boldness, assurance, and conviction. We need you, Lord. We pray that you would lead us to more and more Christ-exalting moments. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Matt. Sure. Thank you, Greg. Thank you so much, everyone. We will see you next Sunday. For round three, but I hope you're encouraged to go and get the gospel to people's ears and let God take it to their hearts. Mm. And we're looking forward to the weeks ahead. Thank you so much. Thank you, Greg.